Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, talk about um, how it is as a church that we can love somebody and show compassion that doesn't compromise the Word of God. And so, Lord, it's very difficult to address this issue, and I pray, Father, that you will, you will guide us through this discussion. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things that I realized coming into the church culture, um, what, 17 years ago, is now we have these two different uh, opposed kind of positions in the church. And we either have the one like, you know, the uh, Baptist church that says that fags die, God laughs, God hates fags. Or we have the complete opposite now. It says Jesus had two dads and he turned out okay, thinking that, you know, homosexuality is okay. So I thought that coming into the church, I definitely experienced this side of it. I don't recall that one. But now I start to realize that, wow, you know what? If I bought into this understanding, then I would ultimately be lost if I accept the Word of God as what my truth is. So here we have two positions that are, that are both wrong, and how is it that we can find that in the middle? Because this side definitely needs some compassion, right? But this side doesn't have the truth. And so how is it that we can get those together and get rid of the things that, that aren't according to God's Word? And so I think that's what the challenge is. So growing up myself, I had gender dysphoria. I thought that I was a girl trapped in a boy's body. I remember going to school, and what happened is that I had defensively detached from my father. I wanted nothing to do with my dad. He was angry and raging, as you saw in the film. And so for me, I thought that I was a girl trapped in a boy's body. So the one thing that I needed is I needed male affirmation. I needed to know that I was accepted by other males. And so then when I went to school, the one thing that I needed became more elusive because they started calling me little girl, sissy, fag. And so what that did is that pushed away the one thing that I needed most, and that was male affirmation. So what that did is it pushed me further back into thinking that I was a girl, that I was like my sisters. And you can imagine this confusion, depression that I had, because I certainly wasn't a boy, but I wasn't a girl either. And so I was like stuck in the middle somewhere. So imagine my disappointment at Christmas and, and birthdays when I got boy toys when I really wanted the girl toys. Barbie's dream house. And so as I was growing up, I remember my sisters getting these really beautiful dresses. I had three sisters and no brothers, so I was surrounded by girls. So again, it was really difficult for me, you know, to adjust to that and to think, how can I fit in? And so I spent most of my time just trying to go through the motions and, and to be chameleon. So whatever you want, I'll be. Whatever you want, I'll be. And this is what I was doing. I was stuffing all of these feelings inside, not knowing where to let them out, where to um, express them in a way where I could at least get understanding. So I didn't even think that help was available. So again, this is how I was growing up. It wasn't until I was 20 years old when I came out into the gay culture that I realized that I was okay being a male. They actually have laws now that will help children like me that if I feel that I'm a girl trapped in a boy's body, the law will go against my parents and allow me to take these hormones and to eventually retard the puberty process so that about 13 or 14, I can finally have the sex change that I desire. And so if that was available when I was a child, I would have been standing first in line. And so what happened is I'm grateful because at 20 years old when I came out, I realized that masculinity was more valuable than femininity. And so what I wanted was male affirmation. So if I just butch it up a little bit and work out in the gym, I found that I got all the attention from men that I wanted. Can you imagine the private purgatory I would have been in had I had a sex change at 15 or 16 years old and then all of a sudden at 20 realized that I should have been a male? 
you know, these surgeries, they, they mutilate and they massacre, um, you, you know, our bodies to make them appear like the opposite sex. But the bottom line is, is the DNA is still whatever your birth gender is. And so people are realizing, even John Hopkins University has done extensive studies, and the LGBT community is extremely upset with them because John Hopkins even said it does not give them what they're looking for. It does not give a male the um, the biological difference of being a female. And again, what it does is it may give you the appearance, but the bottom line is, is these men still cannot um, have children. They cannot have successful relationships, you know, with other men or whatever. So it, and, and the same for women that want to become men. So uh, they found that the suicide rates are still just as high, that the depression is probably in some uh, respects even higher. There's a woman named Nancy that was in Belgium and she became uh, Nathan. And so uh, Nathan was so distraught when he saw his appearance in the mirror with the scarring and everything else that he was so depressed he didn't want to live anymore. And he petitioned the government to have an assisted suicide because he just could not bear the fact of living the way he was. And therefore, the government granted Nancy that, that suicide. Isn't that sad? So again, we found that the uh, rates of suicide attempt are 41% in the transgender culture and uh, that's the, I'm sorry, 41% will attempt suicide, but 30% actually commit suicide. That's a third of a population. Those are the highest uh, statistics among any group of people. Epigenetics and cellular memory. I didn't realize this until I came into a relationship with Jesus Christ that there was something else going on. Exodus 20 verse 5 talks about the sins of the generation to the third and fourth generation. And so basically what that means is that when the sperm and the egg come together, they bring with it the history of three to four generations before that. So using my family, my mother was molested by her father, my grandmother was raped by her stepfather, and my great-grandmother was a prostitute. So just on my mother's side alone, you can see the hereditary cycle of sexual sin. And while I wasn't born gay, I was born with the hereditary tendencies for sexual sin. My grandfather was an alcoholic. He was also very um, violent. And then on my father's side, my dad was a sexual addict. He was also addicted to pornography, two of the things that I also struggled with as an adult. My father's mother was raised by a single mother because her father shot and killed a man that he thought was sleeping with his wife. And so here you can see not only sexual sin on both sides of my family, but anger management, alcoholism, drug addiction, all of these things that have followed through as well. So even my same-sex attraction wasn't necessarily um, something that I chose, but there were hereditary tendencies that the Bible confirms has already been set in motion, as well as epigenetics, which is science. That was a powerful reality for me. The church didn't come and get me. As a matter of fact, I had three sisters that were praying for me. Two of my sisters, my sister Kathy worked with me in my salon. I was what I call the poster child for the gay life. I was a hairdresser and an aerobics instructor, and I don't know that you can get any more gay than that. <laughs> I lived in Orlando, Florida. I lived two miles from five gay bars. I was surrounded by my gay identity. I lived in a gay neighborhood. I drove a gay car. I had a gay dog, and it's a six-pound chihuahua about that big. And so this was my life. At this time, I had a, a wealthy boyfriend. I was a successful hairdresser. I had nine uh, hairdressers working for me in my shop. I was making great money, drove a convertible Mercedes, had a house with a pool, had a, a condo on a lake with a boat. So I had the world by the tail and a rich boyfriend with big blue eyes and big arms. And so we were living the life. It was like the devil was just giving me everything that I could possibly have. And yet I was still struggling with a sexual addiction. And there were times when I would think to myself, wow, is this the best life is going to be? Thinking about, you know, how great life was and just thinking to myself, something still seems to be missing. 
I can look back now and realize that that was the Holy Spirit drawing me because I had two sisters that were praying for me. My sexual addiction was so strong I was acting out as often as three times in a day with different men and as often as three or four times a week. You do the math for 20 years of that kind of life. Unfaithful in the five significant relationships that I had, I knew that I was out of control and I had sex, unprotected sex with men that would be dead three months later. And so I didn't know how to stop. There was just no way I could stop this addictive drive. And yet because of their prayers, I believe that God held his hand over me. And that's why I stand before you today. And so one of the things that I think is so paramount to tell people is that prayer works. And the sad reality is if we buy into the lie that God's okay with your homosexuality, I wouldn't be standing in front of you. That they wouldn't have prayed and they would have, instead they would have prayed for God's blessing. And instead what happened is God was able to use those consistent prayers to help pull me out because I wasn't praying for myself. I wanted nothing to do with a God that I thought wanted nothing to do with me. Being informed. Did you know that indifference is the same as rejection? In the church, there are two responses that I get from most people that walked out of Christianity, and it's either that they were thrown out, kicked out, embarrassed, or, or humiliated, or the other side is that they were basically just ignored. And so I was one of those people that was basically ignored. Nobody was talking about it. I remember at 20 years old, I handpicked one guy that I thought I could trust. I'd watched him for several months, and I determined he was the one I was going to share my secret with. And I sat down with him one, one night after prayer meeting and I said, hey, can I talk to you? And he said, sure, Mike, what's up? And I said, well, it has to do with women. And before I could say another word, he said something so derogatory about women. I knew I wasn't safe to share my secret. And I walked out of church that night and I said to God, I'm done. I can't get my sexuality and my religion to come together. You haven't answered my prayers. You haven't healed me. And so I'm out of here. And so the arms of the gay community were open wide. They were willing to love me. But it's interesting, just a few months after I had come out into the gay culture, I was in a gay bar on a Friday night, right, on the Holy Sabbath of the Lord. So here I am. I've got my drink in front of me. I'm at the bar, and a couple of other people ordered their drinks. Well, now there's like four of us standing around the bar with the bartender. And all of a sudden, one of the guys says, hey, happy Sabbath. And I looked and all the other guys said the same thing. And of course, I chimed in too. And we started to dialogue about how the church had treated us. Did you know that a child has been molested, that they have not only or abused, that not only do they have physical scars, but they have deep emotional scars? Fair to say? Did you know that to a child that's been abandoned or neglected or just totally um, um, just left alone, that they have the same emotional scars as somebody who's been physically beaten? And so I believe that the same thing applies to the church. Even if we condemn homosexuals, yes, that's, in my opinion, that's abuse. But the other side is even if we're not talking about it, that still there are people that are struggling because we're desperate to have these conversations to know, is there hope for somebody like us? And so basically I was one of those people. I walked out of the church because, quite frankly, I couldn't get anyone to talk about this issue. And I believe now, genuinely looking back or even today, that many of us in the church don't know what to say about it. And so we just stay hushed because we're afraid that we'll say the wrong thing. And so that's why I believe that we as a church, if you want to really reach out to the LGBT community and to show them what love really looks like, we have to be informed. And that's why you're here, I believe, is because you have either a curiosity or maybe you have a desire to really want to know more about how to reach out to this, this group of people that either you might find disgusting or maybe you even might, might not even know how to relate to it. And so I, I really applaud you for coming today. 
So looking to keep my boyfriend, I found this group. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was a friend of mine. He'd also come out of the gay culture. He had left a boyfriend that he had for 10 years. And you know what? God provided for me a special friend that we could learn this together. And so I remember one time I looked up on my computer and I just already broken up with my boyfriend. And I looked up on the computer and I found kinship, SDA, SDA kinship. And I thought to myself, Eureka, I can have a boyfriend. And my friend looked at it and he goes, well, just look at the way that they, they, uh, um, that they deciphered these, these uh, scriptures in the Bible. And I go, I don't care. I don't care what it says. I just want a boyfriend. And my friend, but look, it doesn't even make sense. And I go, I really don't care. Just lie to me. Lie to me and tell me I can have a boyfriend. And that was how I felt coming into a relationship with Christ and in the church. It's like I was desperate to hang on to my identity. I was desperate to hold on to my boyfriend. And so this was going to give me that option. However, the Bible may hurt us with the truth, but it will never comfort us with the lie. Isn't that true? And eventually the Lord showed me through my friend that I realized that I definitely could not accept that as truth for myself. And as difficult as it was, I really had to continue this, this relationship with Jesus Christ and to deny the flesh, all the things that I had identified myself with for 20 years. When you're talking to somebody LGBT, I want you to remember that as strong as you find the desire to be with the opposite sex is the same for that person. And so imagine if an LGBT person is already in a relationship with somebody same sex and they have a mortgage together, they've got car payments together, they've got children together. Can you imagine what that means for that couple to tell them that they have to split up and to split up their family and their 401ks and their mortgage? So we're talking about something pretty heavy here, right? So it's not as easy as to think like, oh, what was I thinking? Let me just come back to the other side. There's a lot more to it. And so in the church culture, I remember that I had a great experience with my uh, Caribbean Spanish church in Orlando, Florida. They embraced me. When I gave my testimony, they loved me. And so when I moved to Tennessee to this, to this uh, small mountain community, I thought that every Adventist had basically the same reaction as they would. And so as I started to tell my story, I went to the pastor and I said, hey, I need a men's ministry. And they go, well, well, we'll make you the head of it. And I go, no, no, you don't understand. I can't be the head of something that I need. I need to know how to interact with men on a non-sexual basis. And the pastor says, oh, I guess I understand. He said, well, pitch your idea to the board tonight. I had a speaker that was willing to come. I had DVDs and books on the speaker. We could go and camp out at one of the local camps on Father's Day weekend and have this really great time. And so I pitched my idea to the, to the uh, board. And one of the pastors, one of the elders, I'm sorry, one of the elders was there. And he was a doctor and he was on the board and he looked at one of the books and he just threw it down and he pointed right at me and he said, I don't want to be running around in the woods like a bunch of gay men. The pastor never said a word. The head elder never said a word. That was the best that my church family could give me. I wasn't even living in that life anymore. And yet still, isn't it sad to think that I now have this reputation and this is my new church family and this is how they show their love for me, right? And so I got in my car that night and I was getting used to talking very openly with God. And I said to God, I hate your church and I hate your people. And the Lord then spoke back to me and just said, so why do you go? And I said, well, I go because that's where the truth is, right? And he said, so what do you do when you go? And I said, well, I go to worship you. Isn't that what you ask? And he said, yeah. And he said, stay in that church and learn the process of forgiveness. 
And I'd like to say that it was like a magic wand that God could just wave over my head and I'd be done with it. But it took three years to learn to forgive those people. Imagine seeing the pastor walking towards you and then as soon as he would see you, he would dart to the left or to the right so he wouldn't have to touch you. Imagine seeing these, these other men that were so afraid to touch you or to be near you that they would automatically ignore you or avoid you rather than have eye contact or, or to say anything to you. And you know something? The Lord didn't give me a pink slip and tell me that I could act out sexually. He said, stay there and learn the process of forgiveness, which I definitely needed to do. Because of the years of neglect and abuse that I'd experienced as a homosexual, I had what we basically term as residue in the gay community with this hypersensitivity, meaning that I was constantly looking for offense in people. And so the Lord was teaching me that I had to learn to love people, whether they understood me or not. So what was so miraculous, I think it's the next slide. Yes. So the next slide, um, there was actually uh, two sisters that I was doing Bible studies with. And you know what? They decided that they liked the little black church in our community better than the white church. And so I prayed about it and I said, Lord, do I just drop them off at the black church and then go back to my church? And he said, no. You've done the process of forgiveness and it's time to go. This little church had about 20 members, very small church. I walked up to the head elder who was an ex-drug addict and basically all the church members were his, his wife and his kids. And I said, I know, right? And so, and I said to him, I go, hey, do you have any room in your church for an ex-homosexual, ex-sex addict? And he said, well, have a seat with all the other sinners and can you preach every now and then because we don't have a regular preacher. <laughs> and so his response to me was totally different. It kind of caught me off guard and yet I went with it, right? And so here I am in this little church. And so I want to tell you, it was, um, it was actually the first foot washing that I went to. There was this man, his name was Willie, and he only had one leg. And so I'd see him hobbling from the store. He didn't have any water in his house. So when he got in my car, it smelled really bad. And so occasionally I'd give Willie a bath. I'd give him a hot meal. I'd cut his hair. And then I bought him a suit and I invited him to come to church. Well, he happened to come to church on communion Sabbath. And so I washed his foot, not his feet, but his foot. And I tell people I got 50% off on foot washing. <laughs> So as I was with my friend, I didn't expect him to wash my feet or to reciprocate. And so one of the brothers came up to me and he said, Mike, let me serve you. And I said, well, it isn't necessary. I'm with Willie. And he goes, no, no, I insist. Let me serve you. And so I was so used to rejection from men and I, I never wanted to give a guy a hug for fear that he would think I was copping a feel. And so I sat down, I took off my shoes and socks and this brother wasn't afraid to touch me. And as he was touching my feet and just sincerely just talking to me, he didn't know how to help somebody that had homosexual history or sex addiction. But you know what he did is he just said, you know, Mike, it's a blessing to have you in our church. He says, I see your enthusiasm for Jesus. And I really just want to let you know how much I appreciate that. And all he said was something simple, but that in itself was helping to draw me into the membership of the men. And what was so miraculous is that next thing that he did is he started to pray for me. And as he started to pray for me, the Holy Spirit was moving in that room to the other four men. And there were only four other men in that room. But the Holy Spirit said to them, get up and touch that man. And what those men did is they just came over to me. And as my friend was praying for me, they merely put their hand on my shoulders. And that was when it came. And for the first time in my life, I realized that I was not part of the ladies' lunch club anymore, that I was included by the men to be a man, and that was very healing for me. I want to tell you the story about my friend Billy, who was that head elder that was the ex-drug uh, addict. And so I would preach in my church, and one day after I was preaching, it had been many years since I'd been in the gay culture, and all of a sudden Billy came up to me, and what he did is during the, what do you call it when you dismiss? Benediction. I said it before you did. <laughs> So anyway, what he did is he came up and he just put his arm around me. 
And as my, my friend Billy put his arm around me, he just started to give the benediction about the sermon that I'd given. And all of a sudden, for the first time, there was something familiar about that. As he was standing next to me, I could feel his chest wall against my chest wall. And as he was speaking, I could feel that reverberation coming through his chest wall. And of course, it took me back to my same-sex days. And as I'm standing there in front of God and, and the church and the people that I'd just spoken to, all of a sudden, I cried out to God under my breath and I said, Lord, I don't want this to happen again. And the Lord confirmed to me and he said, no, Mike, it's not intended to. He says, this is, what's, this is what's supposed to show you what affection is between two men. And while it might remind you of that, this is not to remind you of where you've come from. This is to affirm you and let you know that you're okay, that he's just affirming you and he's holding on to you. And again, that's been part of the, um, the healing process. And so in the, in the process of wanting to reach out to people that we either don't understand or history that we don't come from or even the LGBT thing, there isn't this protocol that basically talks about, well, you know, this is how you relate to the drug addict or this is how you relate to the sex addict or this is how you relate to the transgender or the bisexual or the homosexual. It's all the same. That if we're being um, um, moved and directed by the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit is going to enlighten you as to what to do, even if you don't know what to do, right? Doesn't that make sense? And so those men were able to give that to me. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 10 says, For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falls, for he has not another to help him up. And I started to realize that that's the power of what men had in the church to give me. And so if these men weren't defensive and if they weren't afraid that something was going to get on them because they were being moved by the Holy Spirit, they were able to give me something precious that I needed that was derailed when I was young. The fact that I had rejected masculinity, I rejected my dad, the kids in school that rejected my effeminate mannerisms, what I need. What I needed, even as an adult, was to fill this emptiness inside that I was a male and that I belonged to the men. Does that make sense? Where healing begins, God loves you exactly as you are, but he's waiting for you to love him exactly as he is. And his word is how he describes what he is and what it is that he knows is best for us. And so, you know what? We need to be sorry for the way that the treat church has treated us. We need to get better about how we interact with people, but that doesn't diminish the word of God or, his, or, or what his law says. And so, you know what? Even if you're not LGBT, you have to make concessions too. You have to make sacrifices. You're not permitted to sleep with whoever you want. And when you get married, you're not permitted to lust after somebody else's wife. And so we all have to make sacrifices when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, right? And so again, this is the same thing. And, and what we've done in church is that we've taken this LGBT thing and we put it up here and we said, this is the sin that God just can't help. And you know what? We've done that for so long that the gay community probably took that and said, oh yeah, well, if we can't change and if, and if we're an abomination and God doesn't want us, then we want minority status and we want special rights. I believe that the Christian community has been so cruel that they've actually given the LGBT more steam and more rights than they would have had we just realized that it's a sin just like anything else. Here's what I think the answer is, is we take it back and we throw it right back in the pot with uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where it talks about all the abominations that won't be in heaven. Not only does it say homosexual practice, it also says licentiousness, adultery, fornication, right? Murder, lying. So guess what? That puts us all in the same pot. But verse 11 says, such were some of you, meaning that you used to be that way, but you're not that way anymore. 
wow, do you know how profound that would have been if somebody would have shared that with me when I was 18 years old? To give me some type of hope because guess what? If there's hope for you that you don't have to be an adulterating, fornicating, licentious person, then I don't have to be homosexual either because of verse 8. And that I think is really important to make sure that not only do we address what sin is, but we have to leave people with hope as well. Isn't that important? And so um, I think that the conversation needs to start off that we have to be apologetic, rec recognizing that the church definitely has a reputation that it's earned, that we are not known for being kind or loving, but we can change that. But that doesn't throw out the word of God. Instead, what it means is we have a special challenge to not only show more compassion, but also to stand by the word of God and to show other people that the word of God still stands true even in our lives. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. And this is what I see happening in the church now. People are saying that either Jesus was gay or it doesn't matter that what he accomplished on the cross allows me to be in a same-sex relationship and that the Old Testament is a has-been. And I believe that this one, homosexuality, is in now. It really is like the new drug. They've called it the new drug now. And so basically even the designers, the dress designers are saying, oh, if you're straight, you should try gay sex. Oh, and if you're gay, you should try straight sex. And what they're doing is they're just basically blurring the lines and thinking that, hey, everything's okay as long as you love the person. Don't worry about it. And you know what? We're being, like, uh, we're being attacked by the media and even our young people are being exposed to this to the point where it's very confusing. They did a um, statistic for the, um, for the general conference. And what they did is they, they did a questionnaire for all of our students in academies as well as in our universities. Did you know that 40% of our Adventist students think that gay marriage is acceptable? 49%, that's half. And so that's what's going on. The media is definitely pushing this thing. And this is what I believe. We have this group kinship, and they're basically saying that, that God's okay with being gay. And so here's the problem, because if God's okay with being gay, you know, and if it goes against his word, then what we're saying basically is rather than hate you and be angry at you, which of course we know is wrong, then we swing the other way to the pendulum and we basically say, oh, it's no problem. Bring your boyfriend and bring your kids or whatever, and we'll love you that way. They're still lost. Because even if they're sitting in our churches and even if they're not getting the word of God and recognizing that God has something more for them, you're not being any more helpful than if you were cruel. And so in essence, it's almost like you're, you're destroying these people with your kindness. Does that make sense? And so we have to get back to the middle road. We have to let them know that it's not a bad thing that Jesus wants to restore you. And so there's a movie, Seventh Gay Adventist. Anybody seen it? Okay. Anybody heard of it? It's a movie that came out about six years ago, and it's a compassionate film. It talks about these three couples, these three couples. His father is a uh, conference president. Her father was a, uh, um, a college president. And then this guy here was uh, a pastor that had an affair while he was married with two children, and his wife divorced him, and he was kicked out of the church. And so the three compassionate stories, you laugh with them, you cry with them. And you know what? At the end of the movie, you're basically saying, like, hey, those people, they deserve to love. And you know what? The sad thing is, is that when you watch the film, there's absolutely very little biblical evidence to substantiate their position. And so as you watch this, you can't help but be swayed by the emotion that's in it. But then because of the lack of scripture in it, all of a sudden your emotions start to pull you into this thing and to think, hey, they're no different than I am. Why can't they love each other? And what that does is it tears down this, this, this wall of understanding that the Bible is still 
true in its word and that we have to stand on the word of God and that God is compassionate even when we uphold his word. This is Charlene Cothran. She basically was a lesbian that had a, um, a magazine. And in this magazine, it was just basically for women, but she was in not only the, uh, in the magazine industry with the LGBT, she was also an activist. And she talks about what the real agenda is of the activism in the gay community. Let me go ahead and start this. As I look back, I see that the devil deceived me and he deceived to present. The strategy is always to get one little foot in the door, when in fact, uh, the plan means we're going to take over the whole thing. Well, why don't we just get uh, a, a statement, uh, Mr. School Board President, in your school board policy that you simply acknowledge the fact that we, we will not, we will not fire a gay teacher or that there may be some gay students that we're going to be uh, okay with, you know, uh, not trying not to be prejudiced toward them through our policy. We just want one little statement in the booklet when in fact the plan is to take over the whole school system as we see now 15 years later is happening. There's always just, you know, that's the strategy just to get in under the wire and then once you get enough of our people in then to do some major work. I was asked to help with domestic partnership. To, to, uh, get Isn't that interesting? Can I borrow this? For just a second? Okay. So I just want to remind you, I, I'm hoping that this is going to create some questions in your mind. And hopefully it will answer some of the questions that you have. But if you find that you still have questions inside the bulletin, right, if you open this up just above the gray box here, there's a phone number where you can text your questions to and We're going to answer them during the Q&A. It will also give you an opportunity to... Um, to be anonymous and so you don't have to worry about your name being exposed or having to stand up if you have a very difficult question that you want to ask, okay? Thank you for that. Isaiah 520 says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Raise your hand if you realize that what's happening now in society is what used to be good is now considered bad. And what used to be bad is now considered good. That Christians now have this reputation of being haters, judgmental, and, and limited. Like, like that we're ignorant because we're just not as, as enlightened in our minds. And you know something? I bought into that. During the 20 years that I was in gay culture, that it basically had watered down the fact that, you know what? Jesus was just a good guy. Oh, sure, he was the son of God. But in my mind, he was just another nice guy. And so when I came back into church culture, I started to realize that a lot of these, this thinking that was inside my head had to be changed. As a matter of fact, right before I became a Christian, I remember thinking to myself that Christianity was basically for losers. It was for anybody that needed something to hide behind. It was really ineffective in my life. It didn't work for me. And by the examples that I saw of Christians in my life, it wasn't working for them either. And so again, I thought that Christianity was really worthless and for a place where people could hide. I want to share with you the new definition of what family is today. When you're a child, your mom and dad are the entire universe. Hang on. And that universe is expanding. Just this week, the lead actor in Transparent, who plays a transgender... On the surface, the Bowsers may look like an ordinary family. Do we have a tomato? There's mom, Bianca, age 32. Dad, Nick, he's 27. And their two rambunctious toddlers, Kai, aged three, and Pax, 17. Those are their biological children. But in their wildest dreams, these two parents never imagined that they would get to enjoy this kind of ordinary. Because behind her long black hair and feminine figure, 
Bianca was born a boy named Jason. And despite his cropped hair and the whisper of a mustache, Nick was born a girl named Nicole. So actually, Bianca, the mom, used to be Jason, and Nick, who's the dad, was Nicole. And so this is the new definition of family in American culture. So basically what happened is both of them went off their hormones, and the male who's living as a female impregnated the female who's living as a male. Does that make sense? And so these are their two biological children. And so my question, especially after seeing your reaction, is I ask people, what would you do if this couple or this family came into your church and wanted to know Jesus Christ? You know, would their, would their children be able to go to your Sabbath school? Would they, would they be able to see past your reaction to know that they belong there or to feel that they belong in your church? Because you see, we can't stop this now. This is already in motion and the church is not going to stop that. And again, because we're Bible studying people and we study the prophecies, we know this is only going to get worse. So we as a church, we have to change this attitude that we have about how people need to meet our needs when they come in, when we need to meet their needs. Isn't that right? Somebody explained it this way. He said the church should be like a hospital. So what would a hospital be like if you had nobody sick? Be closed, wouldn't it? In every hospital, you have two kinds of people. You have the health professionals, and then you have the sick. And the idea in the hospital is that you have the health professionals that are there to help guide and to bring healing to those that are sick, right? So the church is the same way. What would a church be like if it had no sinners in it? It'd be closed, just like the hospital. And so, you know, a lot of times the churches become inclusive now. And it's like, we don't really want anybody from the outside. And they've got to look, the, you know, the, the way that the church looks or whatever before they can come in, when that's not really God's design. God's design is that all people should be able to find a safe place, a safe environment in the church where they can find healing. So what happens if you put sick people in the hospital in charge of healing the sick? What happens? They stay sick. That's right. They start dying, right? They're going to drop like flies. So here's the problem. In a church culture, if you start accepting homosexuals or LGBT and you baptize them, then you're not only giving them a vote in the church, but you're also baptizing in somebody who isn't healed, who hasn't experienced the healing that God wants them to have. And so the problem is that that we have to make sure that before we baptize somebody that they understand and agree we have to be in agreement. We can't trick these people into being uh, members. They have to know full well what the Bible says, that there is healing through Jesus Christ. And it's a choice that everyone has to make. And so in a church that has a, a, a gay family that comes in, they deserve to find a safe place where they can heal, where they can be loved, where they can be invited to your houses for lunches, and to actually have a participation uh, in some of the activities in the church. But until they accept what the Word of God says, that, that God does offer something for them beyond, and beyond anything that they could ever imagine, then they're still not ready for church membership, but they certainly belong in our churches. Isn't that fair to say? They deserve to have a continuing relationship with each one of us so that they can find that nurturing and a relationship with Christ. And you know, it's no different. You know, whether it's LGBT or even heterosexual, you know, if a couple comes in and a guy is living with his girlfriend and they have three kids, is he ready for membership? No. And so we study with them. We're patient with them. We love them. And what do we do is we wait until the opportunity is right. And when they realize through their own study that this is not according to how God wants them to live, they're not ready for baptism. 
Remembering Cuba, we had that couple and they came forward and the lady didn't even have a divorce and here they were living together and they had kids together. And so you know what? By miraculous intervention, she was granted a divorce on the same day that she got a marriage license and married her, her boyfriend that she'd been living with. And so guess what? On that following weekend, they were able to be baptized because again, they had fallen in line with what the word of God said was appropriate to become a member in the church. And so again, we realize that we have a very difficult situation with families that are coming in. They need to find love. They need to find acceptance for who they are and for where they're at. But you know, the beautiful thing is, is that God doesn't leave us there, right? Romans 13.10 says, Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And if we're using the Bible to hurt other people, then we're using it wrong. And that's what I experienced in church culture before I left at 20 years old. Reparative therapy. I was asked to speak on reparative therapy. I'm not a believer of reparative therapy, uh, anything outside of the biblical uh, stand of having biblical counseling. Because reparative therapy was really set up that it was basically trying to make gay people straight. And the one thing that I realize now is that I still struggle with same-sex attraction, but the Lord has also given me attraction to the opposite sex. It takes time to unravel all these knots that the enemy has put in our lives. And so as I've been walking in this direction, I realized that reparative therapy was almost issues of abuse. What they would do is they would, they would tell um, a young homosexual to take a bat and to beat this pillow with this bat until all this anger would come out about your father. And so I get it that there might be, you know, behavior modification, but that is not what Christianity offers. We're offering relational restoration. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I didn't have to beat pillows or this kind of stuff, but I certainly had to learn the process of forgiveness. And so through biblical counseling, through studying the Bible and spirit of prophecy, the Lord started to show me that there were things that I was living in error about, but he did it at a time that was, that was right for me. And so reparative therapy, in my opinion, is somewhat abusive. They would actually put electrodes on these homosexuals. And every time that they would uh, see uh, homosexual pornography, they would electrocute these men. And so the idea was that we're just going to shock it out of your system. And so those kind of modalities, in my opinion, are really destructive. And, and they get mixed up a lot of time with Christian counseling. But they're two totally different things. You know, reparative therapy is, is a modality basically to change behavior. Christianity is about coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ and allowing Him and His power and grace to change us and transform us. It's not my responsibility to make somebody straight that's gay. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. It's not something that I can do. Protocol. John 12, 32, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. These are Jesus' words. And so you don't have to worry about the protocol for the gay or the protocol for the drug addict or the protocol for the, uh, for the prostitute, whatever it is. Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And so what's beautiful, it's very simple. God's not asking you to convert these people. He's just asking you to create an environment where the Lord can do the converting for you or for them. Doesn't that make sense? They do not have the emotional maturity that you do, and they, make, they may be in great darkness, talking about the people coming into the church. They need a safe place to discover Jesus Christ and a place to grow and to heal and to feel like they belong. We need people to really know that they belong in our church, even if they don't agree with where we're at. And so you know what? I think we want to clobber people over the head and drag them in kicking and screaming into our way of understanding, but that's not effective. It didn't work for me. Would it work for you? 
What I need is I need to know that you love me. I need to know that I'm accepted as I am and that this is a choice that I have to make. You can't drag me into it. You can't force me to do it. But by creating that environment where we can show somebody the love of Jesus Christ, that's what changed me. Nobody got in my face and shook their finger. My sister didn't say, well, if you don't change your ways, you're going to go to hell. Instead, what she did, she loved me. My sister worked side by side with me in my salon. And you know what? My boyfriend and I had the salon and, and I had other men that were homosexual that were working for me in my shop. But my sister, every single day, she loved me. And she would invite my boyfriends over to her house for holidays. She never stopped me from interacting with my um, nephew. And so you know what? She just showed me genuine Christ-like love. And she didn't stick her finger and say, I'm praying for you. You know, she didn't stick her finger in my face. And so that was really powerful for me. Even though in my mind, I thought she accepted me in my gay culture, my gay life. What was going on behind the scenes is that they were praying for me. And the Lord was able to use those prayers in a miraculous way to move the arm of omnipotence. Do you have that? Have you got the arm of omnipotence? So, of course, we need something more. And God has the ability to see things that we cannot. And so your prayers help to effectuate a change where the Holy Spirit can come in and work. And he may not be able to use you, but your prayers allow the Lord to use somebody else that may make a difference. My sisters were shocked that I actually came back into the church. My, my sister, Laura, who lived in Colorado, I asked her in an interview at 3ABN, I said, so what was it like praying for me all those years? And my sister said, you know what? It was really tough. You were so mean to me at some time. She said, the only prayer I could pray was that the Lord would hear our sister's prayer for you. <laughs> Imagine that. She was honest, right? And then I asked her, I said, so what was it like when, when I came into the church and I got baptized? And she goes, well, I didn't think it would stick. Imagine, I should just be honest. But what's beautiful is the Lord said that he promised to finish the work that he started in each one of us. And I'm so grateful that they didn't give up on praying for me. I'm so glad that they didn't accept this as an alternative lifestyle that God approves of because otherwise I would not have had the opportunity to come back to the Lord. A father said, I will not have anything to do with my daughter or her wife and family until she comes to her senses. I was at an ASI convention and this father came up and there were already tears in his eyes. He was already missing his daughter and they had, his daughter had uh, married another woman. They adopted three children. And so now she's got a family. And yet this man thinking that he had to honor God by ignoring his daughter, re not returning her phone calls and not having anything to do with her. And as we started talking about it, I said, then how are those kids ever going to have a father figure in their life? You know, those kids didn't ask for the parents that they got. And even if they're from a loving home, those kids don't have anyone male in their lives to show them who Jesus is. And I said, what does it hurt the gospel if you were able to take those kids every weekend and to take them to church or to share with them Bible stories from the Bible and just interact with those kids who don't have any male influence at all? I said, and you know something, the Bible says, and a little child shall lead them. What if as you show them who Jesus is, that they were able to witness to, to your daughter and to her wife? I said, and why does having a relationship with your daughter compromise the gospel at all? And as we started to talk, these tears started coming down his face. And I think that he really believed that he had to hold up the law, that he had to be, you know, tough on them and that he wasn't going to even speak to his daughter until she came out of all this. And I could see the relief in his eyes as he started to realize that it does not go against the gospel to show love and compassion to those that either are relatives or our loved ones. I want to tell you the story about the biscuits. Oh, did, did you guys get one of these? Anyone? Can I? 
give you the responsibility of giving those out. I don't only have a few more, okay? But basically what I want to tell you is it's this biscuit story is in this. The biscuit story is about Anna. Raise your hand if you saw the film. You've seen the film, Journey Interrupted? Okay, remember Anna from the film? So Anna's mother, Andrea, she's on our prayer line. And so she called me one day and she said, you know what? She said Anna's girlfriend, or Anna wants to bring her girlfriend over for the weekend. And she said, you know, I'm really uncomfortable with that. I, I don't want to even imagine what they do. I don't even want to see this girl. I don't even want her in my home. And as we talked about that, I said, well, you know something? I said, you know, she's a, a child of the king too. You know, she, Jesus is her savior also, right? She goes, I know, I know. She goes, but you know what? I don't even want to deal with it. And I certainly don't want it in my home. What she does outside is one thing, but I don't have to have it here. And I go, nope, you don't. I said, but what if the Lord could use you in a miraculous way to even reach your girlfriend? And she goes, well, I'll have to pray about that. And so as she prayed hard, and you can imagine, she, um, she did tell her daughter, she goes, okay, you can bring her for the weekend. And she says, but you have to understand that you both have to stay in separate rooms. I don't want any, you know, public affection, you know, going on while you're here, whatever. And she said, that's fine, mom. You know, no problem. And so she brought her girlfriend there and they woke up Sunday morning and her daughter comes up and she goes, hey, mom. She goes, we want biscuits and gravy. And she goes, well, you know, that's a lot of work. And she goes, I know. Do you mind? And she goes, no, as long as you help me. And so what happened is, you know, she was standing there with her girlfriend and, and her girlfriend says, well, I don't even know how to cook. And she goes, you don't? She goes, no, my mother never even took the time to show me. And she goes, that's all right. Come over here and you help me make the biscuits. And all she did was start rolling out the, the dough or whatever. And she's helping to cut the biscuits and put them on the, on the cookie sheet. Anna was doing something else. And so while um, Anna's mother and this girlfriend were just making biscuits in the kitchen, you know, her mother didn't know what she was doing at the time. But they made the biscuits and they made the biscuits and gravy and their scrambled tofu and they, they ate a wonderful lunch. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, the two girls went out to do a, a tour of the farm. And while they were out looking at the farm, all of a sudden this girl broke down and started sobbing. And she looked at her and she goes, what's the matter? Did my mother say something to you? And she said, no. She goes, I just can't believe your mom. She goes, what are you talking about? And she says, my mother wouldn't even take the time to show me how to cook. And she says, I know how your mom feels about us. And yes, she showed me how to make biscuits. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we need to have in the church. Not where we necessarily have it all written out and that we know exactly how the Lord wants us to work and how to interact with people, but where we're so surrendered to the Holy Spirit that even when we go against our inclination and the things that we find either disturbing or disgusting, but to recognize that people are children of the King and that as we're moved by the Holy Spirit, just that simple task of making those biscuits for that girl broke her heart. Isn't that what we're talking about? And so you heard the story of our friend Carol, right? Raise your hand if you were in her testimony. Okay, most of you, again. Okay, well, let me just briefly go through that. Carol was molested by three men that were in her circle of friends. She had lost her father because she moved to the United States without her father because her mom got the visa. So she was desperate to fulfill that, to have another father figure. But three men that were put in close contact with, with Carol started molesting her. She decided that she wanted to get baptized at 10 years old, thinking that it would wash away the shame and the filthiness that she experienced. And because that didn't, she thought that God rejected her too. So as she grew up, she started to gain um, weight. She also started to wear boys' clothes because you know what? Femininity was a liability. It made her a victim. 
And she started to think that if I was a guy that I would not have, that I would have had the strength to fight off those people, that they never would have attacked me. And she started to feel inadequate as a girl and that the only solution for her was to become a boy. And so she started to live this way. Not only was she attracted to women, because again, because of the molestation that was repulsive to her. So this is who Carol became. This is what Carol looked like when I met her three years ago. And so as Carol started to come to the Lord into a relationship with the Lord, you can imagine it was a really difficult process for her. But she talks about how when she heard coming out ministries at a convocation one time, that the Lord tapped her on the shoulder and said, hey, if I can do that for them, imagine what I could do for you. And this started to change Carol. And it wasn't immediate. And wouldn't it be nice if God just had a magic wand and went bing over her head and it was all done. But as she started to change, as she started to accept Jesus' word, she started to realize that his word said that you were not made to be a boy, that I made you as a girl. And as she started to slowly embrace that, things started to change for her. She talked about how the first time that she put on girls' clothes, she stood in front of the mirror and for the first time she realized that she was a daughter of the king. Isn't that powerful? And so again, I, I like to show the transition. This is Carol as she was working for us in Paris just this last January. To have Carol working side by side with us and to see the Holy Spirit and how he's worked in her life, that's been amazing to experience. I also want to show you, um, this is Ray. Ray was living in an abusive, um, drug-addicted home. And Ray would get up in the morning and find blood on the wall and on the floors. One of her, her parents would be in the hospital. She was molested on the playground by boys and girls. As she grew up, she didn't know God. She wanted nothing, to, or she didn't know any different. And so she would fantasize about her wedding. But instead of being the bride, she wanted to be the groom. By 16 years old, this is what she looked like. And she was living in a relationship with another girl, only she was the male in the relationship. And as she was going through the motions, she recognized that it wasn't enough. She heard the voice of Ray in her head that said, you know what? You need to be a boy. You need to have facial hair. You need to have muscles. You shouldn't have those breasts. And so she realized that she had to move to Seattle where she could have the sex change that she desired. She moved to Seattle. She started doing counseling with a, with a therapist that had already transitioned from male to female. And this person looked at her and said, you know what? If I had the power, the strength, I would give you permission to have that surgery today. But you have to live as a man for another year and a half before we can line you up for the surgeries. But she was okayed for the hormones. So then all of a sudden this depression started and the voice of Ray was even stronger and said, you know what? You're pathetic. Nobody's ever going to want you the way you are. You should just kill yourself. And so now, now uh, Ray can't even get up out of bed. The depression is so dark and the suicidal thoughts are so strong that she called the only person that she thought could listen to her that would make a difference. And it was a Christian friend of her that lived in Colorado from Washington. And she called her friend and her friend called her back and she said, listen, just come and see me. And she said, well, I don't have any time off and I don't have any money. And she goes, I'll pay for your ticket. Just come on out and see me. And so she paid for her way in a three-day vacation, three-day trip, weekend trip turned into three months. Because Ray knew that if he'd have gone back home, that he would have taken his life. And during that time, he had never prayed before, but her friend was praying for her. And all of a sudden, one day, the thought came to her. She said, you know, I've never prayed. And so in her first prayer, she said to God, she goes, Lord, how do you see me? And all of a sudden, she got this image of a girl in a long dress with long flowing hair, just dancing before the Lord. And she goes, that's not me. But as she continued to pray, as she continued to ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten her, one day the Holy Spirit said to her, hey, have you ever thought about putting on femininity? You know, you've been living as a, as a boy, as a man all your life. Did you ever even think to try on, you know, your feminine side? 
And so she started to embrace this. It wasn't easy for her. She started to let her hair grow out a little bit. And then she started to buy more feminine clothing. And you know what? This transformation started to take place, but it had to be at her timing. Isn't that fair to say? Would you like to see who Ray is today? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that beautiful? This is the transformation that God wants to make. It doesn't take surgery. It doesn't take, you know, a lot of money to change and to mutilate the body to make it appear the way that God intended it to be. As a matter of fact, Marissa a year ago got married to a wonderful guy and then she just delivered her baby just three days ago. Is that amazing? Isn't that sweet? And so here, here as living as Ray, she was ready to, to take off her breasts and she was ready to manipulate her genitals into making it appear more male, which would have destroyed her ability to even have a family. Do you see how the enemy is out to kill and destroy and to steal? And what does he want to steal? He wants to steal away our identity in Jesus Christ. And you know something? I have a beautiful video of Marissa reading Psalms 139. And if you take a look at Psalms 139, it talks about the pursuit of God. It says that he will follow us into the darkness or into the light, to the heights or to the depths. It doesn't matter that his thoughts towards us are as countless as the sands on the seashore. But it goes on in Psalms 139 and it says that God knit our very delicate inward parts together in our mother's womb. What do you think he's talking about? He's talking about gender, our delicate inward parts, right? And so as she started to embrace the Psalms and realize that this was God saying it wasn't a joke, it wasn't a trick. I intentionally made you FEMA because that's who I've known you to be before the earth was formed. And as she started to embrace that, now she claimed back what God had given her originally. And isn't it wonderful that now not only is she able to express that in a marriage with a husband, but also to actually create life. And you know, it's the devil behind that, wanting to steal this away. I'm 57 years old and the chances of me being a father or a grandfather now are very slim. But you know something, it's still better than the options that I had in the gay culture. And because of my decisions, because of my choices, I live with those consequences each and every day. But what about the fact that the devil is trying to steal this ability to not only create life, but also to experience it in the identity that Jesus Christ gave us even before the earth was formed? And that's what I believe is the issue with the transgender issue. And that in Christianity, if we accept this as truth, then you're taking away God-given gifts to men and to women to think that they're outside of that understanding. Does that make sense? Second yeah. Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. You know, when I went to uh, SAA meetings at Sex Addicts Anonymous, and basically what they say is that every time I would speak, I'd say, Hi, I'm Mike, I'm a sex addict. Hi, I'm Mike, I'm a sex addict. And for a year, that's what I did. And you know what? I at least found a place where I could be transparent. I certainly wasn't finding that in the church. But I wasn't finding victory either, and neither were those other men. And so here it is. The Bible says that whatsoever a man thinketh in his heart, right, that's so he is. So every time I stood up to talk, I'm saying, hi, I'm Mike, I'm a sex addict. So I'm locking myself into this thing that I'm dragging around with me that I want no more. And so I don't believe that those are Christian principles that are in the AA philosophy. Because even if I've never had a drink and it's been 25 years since I stopped drinking, I still have to identify myself as an alcoholic. But God says, I'm a new creature in Christ. And what happened to the old things? They're passed away. 
And so I'm not a gay Christian. And I might struggle with same-sex attraction still, but I refuse to allow my sin temptation to be part of my identity in Jesus Christ. What does sin have to do with righteousness? And how can two walk together unless they be agreed? And so one of the things that I had to realize is that I had to, I had to divorce myself. I had to cut off this part of my identity that I worked for 20 years to create. That not only just 20 years, but even as a little kid thinking that this was who I was and that it couldn't change, I had to make a decision. Was I going to go in the direction to follow Jesus Christ to righteousness and sanctification? Or was I going to hang on to this thing that the, the, the Lord said was not who I was? So I believe now that we also have to recognize that we can't just say that, hey, all right, so you're a gay Christian. That's the best you can do. And that they're basically saying that some people can identify as homosexual and also as a Christian. But here's the problem. Now you're standing with one foot in each side of the fence. And at some point I have to decide either I'm going to stop being a Christian and be homosexual. or I got to stop being a homosexual and be a Christian. Does that make sense? As somehow you've got to make a determination because if you want this thing out of your life, you have to cut it off. And again, it's either going to be one or the other. This is a quote from a lesbian gay activist, and you may want to take a picture of it. I think it's a powerful quote. Camille Paglia, she says this, Is the gay identity so fragile that it cannot bear the thought that some people may not wish to be gay? She says sexuality is highly fluid and reversals are theoretically possible. She says, however, habit is refractory once the sensory pathways have been blazed and deepened by repetition. It's a phenomenon obvious in the struggle with obesity, smoking, alcohol, and drug addiction. But she says helping gays to learn how to function heterosexually, if they wish, is a perfectly worthy aim. If I were to say this, this would be considered hate speech. But what happens when a lesbian uh, activist who doesn't even acknowledge Jesus Christ says that change is possible, then who are we as Christians, recognizing the power of Jesus Christ, who are we to say that change isn't possible? And so there's a movement going on in Christianity saying that that's who you are and that God blesses it and that God wants you to be that way because he made you that way. And yet here, a lesbian activist who doesn't even acknowledge God says that change is possible. I believe that what's happening is this movement is basically ultimately saying that the power of Jesus Christ is impotent. That if Jesus calls it a sin and yet we say that it can't be changed, then basically he's no savior at all. Because you know what? If, 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 if salvation is only for heterosexual people but it wasn't for me, then that's not a fair God, is it? And so as I cried out to God, I said, you better have the answer for this. Otherwise, you're no God at all. And he showed me that there were things that he had in store for me that I had no idea for myself. But I had to submit to the process. If I held on to my, my gay life, my gay understanding, I could. But I could not deny the fact that I had to make a decision. Was I going to keep my boyfriend or was I going to keep my savior? This is another quote that she has. She says, homosexuality is not normal. On the contrary, it's a challenge to the norm. Nature exists whether academics like it or not, and in nature, procreation is the single relentless rule. That is the norm. Our sexual bodies were designed for reproduction. No one is born gay. The idea is ridiculous. Homosexuality is an adaptation, not an inborn trait. And so, you know what? I love the fact that God does not condemn the person that has same-sex attraction because he understands that there's a reason why you have that. 
And in his compassion for me, I started to realize that, that he still loved me and that he still wanted me, but I had to give these things up. I had to address it in a time when it was right for me, and God was very patient for me, with me. And so that process wasn't easy, but let me tell you something. The rewards of what I experienced during those years of giving up my identity, giving up my boyfriend, giving up all these things that I identified myself with, what did I get instead? I got the identity of Jesus Christ. I got something so much more, a peace I'd never known before, victory over my sexual sin and my acting out. I'm going to bring it to a close. Some of the issues that we're dealing already in the church. There was a mother who was concerned that her, that her um, transgender daughter, who was a son, who had a five-year-old child that was calling him dad, so she pays to have her son turned into her daughter, and now she says, I'm concerned about her salvation because... Before, he was heterosexual, and now that he's a female, he's still attracted to women. Have I confused you yet? Yes. All right, so let me break this down. Let me break this down. All right. So if I'm a male and I'm attracted to women, right? And then I, I have a relationship with a woman and I have a five-year-old son who still calls me daddy. But then I transition to become a female. My attractions haven't changed, just my identity, right? And so this is, this is something that people don't understand. Just because you're transgender does not make you gay. So you can be heterosexual and transgender, but no matter what I do to my body to make it appear female, the fact remains that my DNA is still male. There was nothing wrong with my attractions if I was heterosexual before surgery, the problem isn't that I become a lesbian just because I mutilated my body. There was nothing wrong with the attraction. Does that make sense? And so it's wrong to assume that just because somebody's transgender that they're automatically homosexual. And they've done studies and shown that more men that are transgendered are heterosexual in their attractions even though they view themselves as female. Does that help to differentiate the two? And so this is what's going on in the church. And it's just going to get more confusing. There was a woman that was a Seventh-day Adventist. She was raising her children. Her husband left her and she had uh, a sexual relationship with somebody that she worked with. And after the third time that they'd had a sexual relationship, all of a sudden this uh, person actually confessed to this woman that, that instead of being a man that she was actually a she. And so then this person called us and just said, wait a minute. Am I gay because I fell in love with somebody that I thought was a guy that's really a girl? Is that confusing to you? So imagine what this person was going through. And then imagine the transgender that comes into the church and you can't tell the difference. You know, do you want them to date your son or your daughter? Okay. <laughs> Raise your hand if you're single. All right, so what if there's somebody in your church that's transgender and you can't tell the difference and all of a sudden you get married and realize that, oops, wait a minute, right? So do you see the confusion that's in that? This is what's going to happen to the church. I believe that the transgender issue is going to be more confusing to the church than even just the LG um, B part. A 13-year-old transgender wants to go to camp. And so this is a real situation that happened. So the mother has already bought into this. She's painted uh, this child's room pink, filled his closet with lots of pretty dresses, and now this child wants to come to your camp. Do you dress him up as a girl and expose the girls to male genitalia? Or do you force him to dress as a boy and put him on the boy's side and subject him to the taunting and the teasing? And then again, who does this child ask out for the Thursday night banquet? So do you see how, how difficult this is? And so if you isolate this child and tell them that you'll have a private cabin for them, the law steps in and says that's, um, that's um, what is it? Discrimination. discrimination. Thank you. Yeah. They would say that's discrimination. And so you can imagine this, this is a real situation. This really happened. It's happening in schools. You walk 
into a girl's bathroom. I'm a, I'm a school counselor, and I went into a bathroom, and there's a boy there. And then some teachers say, no, I think that was a girl before, and he's now a boy. You know, and it's so uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But you, and you can't say anything. Right. You know? A perfect example of what's going on in the world. So again, I just want to let you know, we can't change it. It's going to happen, and we know that things are only going to be worse. But what can we do from our side of it? How is it that we can still show the love of Jesus Christ that doesn't compromise the truth, but instead offers them something else, something that they're not getting anywhere else, right? And I, and I know that especially for people that are teachers, counselors, social workers, psychology people, this is a really difficult thing, and it could co ultimately cost you your job. I want to talk about our prayer line for just a moment. Our prayer line, this is the number four. If you want to take a picture of the screen or if you want to write this down. One of the things that we found is that parents go through a special shame like I never experienced before. Parents have a guilt and a shame that is exponentially greater than anything I've ever experienced before. And so there was a book called um, Out of a Far Country, if you want to write that down. And it was written by Christopher Yoon and his mother. Christopher was Chinese and his mother also, and it was a very prideful thing that if you have a son or daughter that's gay, it's, it's, it's a, a big shame. It's really a, a big issue. And so she was ready to commit suicide, and she got on the train, ready to take her life, and she on this train, she didn't pack a bag, and she was on her way to say goodbye, goodbye to her son, and she stopped in a church, and she got a pamphlet and says, does Jesus love gays or homosexuals? And that pamphlet converted her. She became a Christian. And instead of taking her life, she went back home and dedicated her guest bathroom as her prayer closet. And every Monday, this woman fasted and prayed for her son. And she said, I don't care, Lord, do whatever it takes to get my son's heart. And so this book, chapter by chapter, the mother writes a chapter, then the son writes a chapter, and his life goes dark while she's praying for her son. And you know what? He gets kicked out of dental school. He ends up selling drugs, so much drugs that he gets arrested by FDA. Or, yeah, FDA? Huh? No, federal drug. What is it? Huh? FDA. Yeah, yeah, federal drug administration, right? Okay. So anyway, they come in and they bust them. <laughs> FDA? Yeah, those people. But it was federal charges because he had so many drugs in his apartment. And so he uh, gets taken to jail. As he's uh, going into jail, they do blood tests, find out that he's HIV. So here's the guy, no friends, no money, no car, no, no nothing. And here he finds out that he's HIV positive. And one day he was walking by a trash can and there was a Bible in it. And he thought to himself, I am going to prove to my mother and father once and for all that this Jesus thing is a hoax. And he pulled that Bible out. And what do you think happened? That's right. That's right. He was converted. And so, you know, the mother didn't care. She didn't care. Whatever has to happen to my son to get his attention and to make sure that he's in the kingdom. And so even though he's HIV positive, even though he was arrested for drugs, for her, it meant everything that he would know Jesus Christ. And today he's a powerful pastor that gives his testimony. But the book is powerful because it helps, I think, mothers and fathers to recognize that there is a power that they have access to that they may not realize and that they're not fighting this battle alone. On our prayer line, we began this six years ago, and we've got a brother that's been praying for his wife for six years. His wife left him for another woman, and so she, she, uh, he's desperate for her to come back to have his family restored. And so what we do is on Thursday and Friday mornings, we have the prayer line, and it's created a community. As a matter of fact, this weekend, ladies are getting together from our Friday morning, and they had never met before. And so here they are from Florida, Arkansas, Kansas, uh, Michigan, 
and uh, Tennessee. And so they're all getting together to get together because one of the ladies has a husband that's dying of renal failure. So isn't that amazing? They've created a community and they can trust each other and they don't have to feel the shame and they encourage one another. So I want to encourage you also to, to take that number down and come and join us. I want to end and I know we have to stop. I want to tell you Emily's story. The music's a little bit strong, but the story's really powerful. Is that okay if I share that? Okay. <laughs> I was 15 and I started dating a girl that lived down the street from me. It was my first time ever dating someone and being official. I was pretty pumped. I got a hickey. My dad saw it and was livid. I love her. It's a girl and I'm going to be with her and this is how it is. Yeah, it went terribly. I guess she told some people and so they came to me and asked me, are you and her gay together? I can either cow her away or I can own it, so I'm gonna own it. I said, yeah, what about it? Love is not necessarily between a man and a woman. The problem was backwards thinking. If you were truly a Christian, you were on my side. And if not, you were legalistic and you needed to reread what God was really about. Judge not. God being loved meant God was nice and God was chill with what you were cool with. By 18 and 19 and 20, I was super wild and in serial relationships with women. When I got to nursing school, I met the girl that I ended up being engaged to. I kind of slowed down a little bit for her because she had two kids. And then at 22, I got invited to a Bible study. I expected them to bring up my lifestyle really early and then use that as justification for not coming back. So I agreed to go. Different women in the circle were talking about different experiences they had. I have nothing like that, and it bugged me. I could not stop thinking, what if all this true? Are you sure this is who you are? I couldn't stop questioning. I need to feel okay, because I don't feel okay anymore. Google verses on homosexuality. Those who practice homosexuality, which was me, and also drunkards and a bunch of other things that I would have been. I realized that I was in the will I entered the kingdom of God lineup, and it scared me really, really bad. And then I read verse 11, and it says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. I realized that there are people in the same place and they were saved and they were changed. And that, that God could do that for me too and that I needed that. I could hold on to my sin and reject God or I could turn to Him. All the debt that I racked up living like I lived didn't have to be mine if I could trust him. So that was it. I knew what I wasn't going to do because it was right there. It was black and white. I twisted those scriptures before. I'd argued them down. I said judge not to them like that mattered. And then that day, it was like my eyes were really open. I was amazed at the grace he showed me. Mm.
people say to me all the time, I was born this way. I say, okay, yeah, me too. You're not born with right affections. That's why Jesus had to come. You feeling a desire for sin just proves you need grace like me. Uh. It's not gay to straight. It's lost to saved. God calls us not to heterosexuality, but to holiness. Even though the world would paint a, a totally different story about what sexuality is and isn't, God's word is clear and he can save, and he does, and he will. Let's pray as we close. Thank you, Lord, for your miraculous grace. Thank you, Lord, that we were all shaped in iniquity and born into sin, but you ask us to be born again. And Lord, it's a really difficult conversation to have with people today because we are being called haters and that we um, are nearsighted and that we don't understand what people go through. But Lord, each one of us struggles with the flesh. Each one of us struggles in our own way to understand, Lord, what's going on in this world and also how to find deliverance, how to find um, reconciliation to your word. And so, Lord, because these people have come with genuine questions, Lord, and they desire to know more about how to relate to people that, that they don't relate to, I know, Lord, that you want to provide for us answers, and you do it. And not only do you do it through your word, but you said in Revelation 12, 11, that we overcome not only through the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lamb, but also by the word of our testimony. And, Lord, I can't deny the power of these testimonies. And that's what helped me. The very first time that I heard a testimony of somebody that had come out of homosexuality, I heard the same voice that Carol did. They said that if I can do that for him, then imagine what I could do for you. And so, Lord, not because of our word, but because of your word, Lord, we hold you accountable. We also thank you, Lord, for guiding us in a loving way, Lord, that's not condemnatory. But instead, Lord, you offer us hope and something else. And that is reconciliation and true, Lord, true intimacy with our loving Savior that really helps to answer all the questions, Lord, that we have. So, Lord, I pray that for each person within the sound of my voice, that, Lord, that you'll begin that journey, that you'll help to guide us and to show us, Lord, that we have an obligation to our brothers and sisters that we either don't understand or that we might find their, their sin temptation um, repulsive or disgusting, but, Lord, I'm just reminded that you find all sin disgusting. And so, Lord, we're all in this together. There's nobody better than us, and we're certainly not better than anybody else. And so help us. Help us, Lord, to maneuver this so that your kingdom can be full. And that, Lord, that our loved ones will be there with us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.